0: I'm on a toadstool, I'm on a toadstool, I'm on a toadstool, I'm on a toadstool. No. No, that's too annoying. Hello, and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare, and every show I'll be taking a look at a novice author's first page and suggesting ways they might make it better. Will they listen to me? We'll never know. One of the rules I was told for doing stand-up and one-man theatre shows and performance poetry was if you ever talk about suffering or personal problems, you've got to convey to the audience, I'm all right now, I'm fine. What they're hearing is a narrative of suffering from the past. Otherwise, they get uncomfortable. If you go, I'm really sad, I'm really sad right now, here in the room, I'm not okay and I don't know what to do. They feel weird, like like you're putting this on them and not giving them any closure and they feel bad for you, but it's a passive role that they're in, so they can't help you, so they've just got to sit there and then take away that awkward, sad, heavy feeling at the end of the show. Because we want self-disclosure, right? That feels good and intimate, but we usually... It has to be pounded into shape on the anvil of public acceptance until it looks like something most of us are comfortable with. And then you can be seen to be generously sharing while still retaining a huge amount of control. It feels like openness... It's got the same shape as openness, but it's actually a very, very safe exchange. And I feel that way with writers sometimes, the way we talk about our own work, because a lot of authors talk about writer's block or struggling with work, but they're almost always successful authors talking from a position of having plenty of money, a loyal fan base and a safety net that more or less means they can mess up with few repercussions. They're often talking about something that happened in the past, or they're talking urbanely about struggles in a way one suspects is just modesty. You know, they're laughing about it. It's a funny bit of self-deprecating banter. For me, creative failure and the fear of creative failure have never felt like that. They've always felt much more raw, more existentially threatening, more pervasive. Where one ends and the other begins, I don't know, but, you know, we get sold this... Safe image of the writing life, this charmingly frustrating, of writers as moody little characters, of creative problems as jolly little bumps in the road that are always ultimately surmounted. And maybe they are by some people, but so far not by me. And I say that because, I don't know, it just feels important to be honest about it and maybe provide a counterpoint to all the success narratives we hear, because... Doing this job, you're ultimately at the mercy of being able to do it well and finding an audience. And if you can't do either of those, then all the amusing, self-deprecating whimsy about one's creative neuroses isn't going to make people thank you for having written a shit book. They'll just say it was crap. I'm so, so amazed and so, so jealous of writers who can just sit down and churn out books. I have grinding obsessive worries about what i write and i don't think it makes me a particularly superior writer but it's an addiction i can't let go of or i've not yet learned to let go of on the other hand i'm very aware that as some of you know i have an anxiety disorder and a panic disorder sometimes i wonder how wise it is for someone like me to be giving writing advice it's a bit like having a guided tour of york from a guy who's constantly crying but the good news is you probably won't find writing as hard as i do and i've still managed to get two books published i'm like the angst pace car i could not be less constitutionally suited to writing and yet somehow i've managed it if i can then there's hope for every one of you fuckers out there yes even you gary i guess what i'm saying is if i can't be a role model at least let me be a grim cautionary tale be lovely to yourselves, writing buddies. Take childish delight in your ability to create. Congratulate yourself on gifting to the world your colourful, beautifully imperfect creations. You're much more likely to write something that connects, fascinates and delights by loving yourself than by being your own jailer. Right, hippie pep talk over. Now onto the practical stuff. If you want to read along, there's a text version of this extract in the show notes on my website, timclairepoet.co.uk. This piece is untitled and it's by Raja. The first thing Girthana felt was the cold. She had felt it before. Spending winters in northern India makes one used to the cold. This was different. It was all-encompassing. It wasn't like the cold you feel when you step outside on a snowy day, no. This was different. It was slow and deliberate, and before you know it you're shivering and pressing your hands between your thighs. Girthana lifted her face off the floor, her dark hair falling over her face as she took in the room around her. It was about the size of a shipping container, and just as dark. She had no memory of this place, and when she tried to reach out in her mind to work through the memories of the past few hours or even the previous day, she drew up a blank. Githana shivered again, her teeth clattering as she shifted slightly and sat herself up. Her first instinct was to reach down, unbutton her jeans and check. Okay, so at least that's some comfort, as she buttoned her jeans back up before sitting against the cold wall of the container. She reached into her back pocket for her phone. Wiping a sheen of dust away, she switched it on. She recoiled slightly as the brightness of the screen hit her face. Fuck, she exclaimed, as she realised the battery was just about running out. I can't remember the last time you swore like that, sis, a familiar voice called out to her. Okay, here's my suggestions. The first thing Gearthana felt was the cold. A solid first line. You name the protagonist, the language is simple, and you end with the most interesting word. Cold. Ooh, it's a little tickly teaser. Why is it cold? Where is she? And why is coldness the first thing? Those are all brilliant questions. Well done. She had felt it before. Spending winters in northern India makes one used to the cold. She'd felt cold before. Does that really need saying? How many human beings alive on this planet do you genuinely think have never experienced the sensation of coldness? Like maybe if your body has been completely numb since birth. So if your character has a serious congenital nervous system disorder, which would be worth mentioning, that's going to have a major impact on their life. But otherwise, you don't have to point out that they've had an experience that almost everyone who has ever lived has also had. That's Swept up into the big backpacko assumptions, you can rely on your readers to schlep into the story. Also, as a side note, even if it wasn't that common, stepping in on your second line to say basically, oh yeah, this thing that I just explained on the first line isn't a particularly novel experience for this character, just flattens the impact of your opening. Like, if two characters were kissing, then you immediately followed up with... Oh, by the way, he'd smooched other dudes, of course. That detracts from our engagement in the moment. You're lowballing it for no good reason. Spending winters in northern India makes one used to the cold. So, I don't like the formulation one in this sentence. It's oddly clinical and distant. It makes your third-person narrator sound like a smug colonel angling for a peerage. More importantly, while this is... Interesting biographical detail, you haven't worked it in naturally. It drops into the story with a resonant clang. We don't need to know this yet, and having the narrative shove it at us before we're ready knocks us out of your imagined world. Stay in the fictional present for a bit. You have to work up a reader's appetite for biography before you start serving up steaming platefuls of a protagonist's history. Otherwise, it's the fictive equivalent of an endless Facebook wall of other people's baby photos, each one desperately significant to its poster but about as emotionally resonant to the wider world as a slice of garlic, salami or a doorstop. This was different. And why include the previous sentence at all? It's like having someone gored through the pancreas by a bull's dextral horn, then writing, Lawrence had eaten Spanish omelette before. Spending summers on the Costa del Sol makes one used to egg-based continental cuisine. This was different. It was all-encompassing. It wasn't like the cold you feel when you step outside on a snowy day. It was all-encompassing is pretty good. Not an especially original formulation, not hugely evocative because it's an intensifier rather than additional information, but the odd intensifier clause here and there can be great. If you cut sentences two and three, your opening would read, the first thing Girthana felt was the cold. It was all-encompassing. Which sounds pretty good, right? That's clear writing that engages one of our five sentences and gives us a character in a situation With a little bit of tension. I'm really sorry if I'm mispronouncing her name, by the way. But then you go on. It wasn't like the cold you feel when you step outside on a snowy day. Sure, I believe you. So why are you wasting 15 words describing something it's not like? It's not like a bear or a false moustache or 15 boiled eggs in a condom either. We could be here for pages excluding things it's not like. And look, obviously... I'm being facetious, no surprise there, but I'm also being deadly serious. Think about what happens when he use the formulation it wasn't like or it was nothing like. You're stepping out of the narrative present to ask the reader to imagine something not in the scene. Then you're going, you know that thing you just made an effort to imagine? Erase that. And if the things you imagine as I go on to describe the scene come near that, know that you've gone wrong. I suspect an interesting scene or short story could be constructed entirely out of negative formulations. He didn't use the good cutlery. She didn't laugh at his Inspector Clouseau impression. He didn't stop doing it for the entire meal, etc. But you're doing a negative formulation and a simile. Similes are already asking the reader to stand outside the narrative and imagine something else before jumping back in. This is the stylistic of equivalent of don't think of a white bear. The reader can't help but think of stepping outside on a snowy day because that's what you've just evoked. It's like saying, I'm not one of those guys who scratches his crotch then sniffs under his fingernails. The instant inevitable effect is to link you subliminally with the unpleasant behaviour, despite the fact you explicitly instructed the listener not to do so. No, this was different. Same as I said before, you're repeating yourself, only now your narrator is literally saying no. I suspect, subconsciously, you already realised this wasn't working, and so you've dropped little messages to yourself within the story. It was slow and deliberate, and before you know it, you're shivering and pressing your hands between your thighs. So this sentence undergoes a disturbing metamorphosis halfway through, turning from third-person past tense to second-person present continuous. Also, saying it wasn't like the cold you get when you step outside on a snowy day, it was all-encompassing, implies it's colder than a snowy day, right? You're saying, it's fucking brass monkeys, but then you say, it's slow and deliberate. I have no idea what deliberate cold means, but you expand. Before you know it, you're shivering and pressing your hands between your thighs like on a snowy day, right? Because the human body doesn't change temperature immediately, which is why you can jump out of a sauna into a snowbank in only your swimming trunks and it's a lovely, tingly sensory massage and not banned under the Geneva Convention. I don't understand the distinction you're making. This is a great example of why less is more in description. Pick one adjective or one metaphor and run with it. Don't worry if it's not pinpoint accurate, just commit yourself. Far better that than spending two paragraphs trying to zero in on this one exact fiddly little thing you mean. And instead you end up pinging all these associations off in the reader's mind and leaving them completely bamboozled. He who chases two rabbits catches neither. But then he who chases a rabbit usually doesn't catch it either. Rabbits are fucking fast. Don't chase rabbits is the lesson here. They have enough shit to deal with without you hassling them. And even if you caught one, what would you do with it? You'd just be holding a distressed rabbit. Giathana lifted her face off the floor, her dark hair falling over her face as she took in the room around her. So you spent so long farting about trying to give us the exact temperature in degrees Kelvin that you've forgotten to tell us that she's face down on the fucking floor, which is miles more interesting. This is exciting. It's like someone telling you an anecdote where they get hung up on nailing the exact shade of salmon pink their polo shirt was before the car their kidnappers were driving. Power slid off a bridge into a river and they had to fight their way out of a locked boot with both hands tied as it filled with freezing water. Her dark hair falling over her face. She can't see the colour of her own hair, or at least it's not important to her at this point. Don't give us details that encourage us to see your viewpoint character externally. And also, that repetition of face in the sentence clangs a little bit. Try not to repeat it. It was about the size of a shipping container and just as dark. How dark is a shipping container? I'd imagine pitch black, which would preclude seeing the dimensions of the room and her own dark hair. I, I doubt many of your readers will have been locked inside shipping containers. Some of them might be, but you'll need a better simile. Because also, it might depend if the shipping container is outdoors or in the hold of a ship. She had no memory of this place and when she tried to reach out in her mind to work through the memories of the past few hours or even the previous day, she drew up a blank. So what does it look like? Is it a room? What? The only information you've given us is shipping container, although it's not an actual shipping container, it's about the size of a shipping container. So I'm having to imagine her in a shipping container. Is she on a carpet, a hardwood floor, stone flagging Why would she try to remember the past few hours if she's just woken up? That's a weird beat. When you wake up in the morning, you don't go, I can't remember the past few hours because you've been asleep, right? You try and remember the day before. I believe the phrase is drew a blank rather than drew up a blank, by the way. And also, when she tried to reach into her mind to work through the memories, that's a very long-winded way of saying when she tried to recall. Don't invent new cumbersome ways of explaining actions we already have words for. Githana shivered again, her teeth clattering as she shifted slightly and sat herself up. You say shivered again, but you haven't yet described her shivering. Her teeth clattering? Unless she has gigantic tin prosthetic fangs with a bite radius of three feet. This is definitely the wrong verb. It's way too loud and violent. I don't know what the action shifted slightly adds either. Humans are always shifting slightly. It's an almost meaningless phrase. Her first instinct was to reach down, unbutton her jeans and check. Okay, so at least that's some comfort as she buttoned her jeans back up before sitting up against the cold wall of the container. So here you've put the clause, okay, so at least that's some comfort in speech marks, but it doesn't sound like something someone would say out loud on their own. So I'm I'm assuming it's meant to be a thought that she has. In which case, I, I don't think you need to give us a direct verbatim thought. Keep it in the third person stream of consciousness narration. OK, that was at least some comfort. You're a bit coy about what exactly she's looking for. and I assume she's checking to see if she's been sexually assaulted. I realise it's an upsetting subject, so I understand why you've tried to be a bit delicate. But at the same time, if you're too squeamish, it allows the reader to look away, which your protagonist doesn't have the luxury of doing. So make sure you're averting the narration's eyes for the character's sake, and not just to protect your reader's middle-class sense of a just world. But then wait, you end with the cold wall of the container. So when you say it was about the size of a shipping container, you mean it's literally the size of a shipping container because it's literally a shipping container and she knows... It's a shipping container. Stunning twist reveal. That, as a reader, I completely didn't get. Look, I think you need to be much more specific about the fact that just commit to it being she was inside a shipping container. If you want her to know that, just say it. There's no need to sort of feel around the subject because otherwise we think it's not a shipping container and we're lost. Maybe other people listening got it straight away, but I certainly didn't. Look, Thank you so much for sending this piece in. What an exciting opening scenario. Terrifying, upsetting, packed with tension and questions. Your writing instincts are bang on the money here. This is a good place to start. Your prose not quite so successful. But that's okay. Editing prose is the easy part. If she was sat in bed watching unboxing videos on YouTube, no amount of stylistic topiary could make that gripping. You have the content down. Style, we can always work on. So please, please, please don't be discouraged by the fact I've nitpicked and gone through it going, this doesn't work, this doesn't work. That's all stuff you can fix and that is actually relatively easy to fix. Just give yourself permission to be a bit more straightforward in how you describe things. I suspect... A lot of this slight writing around the subject and overwriting comes from a lack of confidence. And I think you can have absolute confidence that your content is good enough and simply make it a little bit simpler. Because if you do, then that content will shine through. And that's it. If you'd like to submit your own first page for me to talk about on the show, please go to my website, timcloudpod.co.uk and click the link to our submission guidelines in the show notes. And please, 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 if you are a writer or you know a community of writers or you simply have a very loud voice, please share information that this show exists far and wide because I'd love people to listen to it. Because once it's recorded, right, the more people that listen to it, the less of a weird person shouting at myself in a room I am. Theoretically, I mean, I'm probably still that, but it's weirdly justified. You're you're, in, you're an enabler, basically, is what I'm saying. Anyway, I, I also have a novel out called The Honours. Please buy it and tell your friends about it. It's, it's really good, I think. Uh, and uh, I have an anxiety disorder that's largely triggered off disapproval. So if you want me to be happy and healthy, maybe think about constantly validating me so I don't have to deal with the underlying issues. I'm kind of joking. Until next time, thank you for listening and well done for writing.